If you now please take your copies of God's word in hand. <coughs> Excuse me. Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 8. This is going to be kind of the opposite of last week. Last week we had a really big text, which was like a chapter and a half. Today's going to be a very small text, just three verses. So Acts, chapter 8, verses 1 and 3, the aftermath of the stoning of Stephen. It's Acts, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Here now, the word of God. <clears throat> and Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This ends a reading of God's holy and erred and inspired word. May he write his truths upon our hearts. Um, yesterday, usually I take off on Saturdays. Yesterday was a, a work day because we went and visited my dad. He's been kind of sick. I was in my office, and uh, Sloan came in to kind of check out some of the work that deacons have been doing in the office. And it was a great opportunity for us to join together in lamenting how frustrating our individual college football teams are. <laughs> um, now, we had to be patient with Sloan. You know, you don't, you don't, you don't want to ever get into a, a, a comparison, uh, comparing scars with a Mississippi State fan. Uh, but nonetheless, we did lament, you know, Tennessee's kind of up and down all over the place. And Mississippi's historically just kind of always down. And we're really down right now. We got to be like 51 to 10 uh, yesterday. It was just an absolute embarrassing. But one thing that comes with this is probably the most exciting part of being a college football fan. And that's a good old-fashioned coaching search. Um, it doesn't seem likely that our coach is going to be retained for next year. We're probably going to be searching for somebody else. Uh, I watched an interview with him after the game, and I, I think he's come to this conclusion too. He's kind of down and disheartened. And, and I, as I was watching, I, I couldn't help but feel bad for, for the guy. And I, it reminded me of this one time. I can't remember who it was. I think it was one of the Florida coaches that had been let go over the past, like, 15 years. But um, they had just lost a game by a lot. Um, everybody in the stands who were still there were just booing and just cursing this coach. And you could tell that he, he knew that his time, his time was up. But as he's walking off the field, his wife and his daughter come to him, and they hug him, and he picks up his daughter, and he kisses her, and they smile, and they even laugh, and they walk off the field. And I just couldn't help but think, what a wonderful contrast this is. 80,000 people are basically hoping he gets hit by a bus in the parking lot. While, but there are two people, the two most important people to him in the world, who they don't care what everybody else is saying. They don't care that everybody else hates his guts, that they wish he had never stepped foot on this campus. They love him because that's, that's, that's her husband. That's her, her father. They, they loved him. That all, and all those boos and all that hate did was amplify what I saw as being the love between a father and a daughter and a husband and a, and a wife. Uh, that's almost exactly what we have in these three little verses here today. You have this arena, this crowd, this atmosphere of just seething hate for not just Stephen, the one they have stoned, but the whole church of Jesus Christ. 
They hate Christ and they hate his messengers. And they're going out and Saul is the kind of the ringleader. He's dragging people out of their homes. Other people are probably being martyred as well. They're being thrown into prison. The church is being ravaged. But right there in the middle of it, there in verse 2, you see this little burial. You see these devout men loving Stephen, loving their church and lamenting over their loss. And so I want us to really just own this theme here today. I want us to look at the love uh, that the church has for each other. But then I want us to turn our attention to the hate, not to see how bad they had it, not to see how bad we have it, but to see how suffering, persecution, and even death can highlight the church's love for one another and Christ's love for his church. Let's begin by looking at verse 2 and the church's love for one another. Let me read again for you verse 2. Luke writes, Devout men, excuse me, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Um, This will become pretty important here in just a little bit. Um, The ancient way that the Hebrew people would um, lament and mourn the death of someone close to them was a very loud and a very public thing. There have been sackcloth, there have been ashes and things like that. It's not really something that you did kind of in secret. It's a very kind of public uh, way of doing things. It's a way to honor the dead. Uh, But this was a very risky situation. I mean, the guy that they're burying is someone who was just executed by a mob of people. This mob is still out there, as we'll, as we'll see here in a little bit. They're even growing and expanding. Uh, this is, they're burying this guy and lamenting and mourning over him at great risk of their own life. It's quite clear that they loved the man that they were burying. They loved Stephen, but, but why did they love Stephen? I'll give you three reasons why they loved Stephen. This is what we've seen really beginning in chapter 6 all the way up until now. The first reason is he was one of them. One of them. We are a them. Salem is a them. The church of Jesus Christ in the whole world is a them. This is a very, this is the early church. They are an infant church. We're we're not talking about between Acts 2 and Pentecost and what's going on now. This is not a matter of years. This is just probably a matter of, of, of months. Probably less than a year that all of this has taken place. Um, this is an infant church, and this are, these are people with infant faith. So they're, they're growing up together in likeness in Jesus Christ. They're growing up together in their faith in Jesus Christ. And that, that creates a, a bond that is, dare I say, unbreakable among the saints. Um, I had a lot of friends in high school. I had a lot of friends in college. Most of them I don't keep up with. But there's a group of about five or six of us that are still keeping in touch with each other. We still like to get together and hang out from every now and then. And what makes them different than anybody, any of my other friends is, is this. We all either became Christians together or we became deepened in our love for Christ together. We grew up together. They mean a lot to me. They meant a lot to me. They still today mean a lot to me. I love them. They're not just friends. These are, these are this is family that I have. Their wives that they've gone off and married. They're, they're my family as well. Their kids today are also my family because we grew up together in the faith. This is one reason why they love Stephen. Another reason is 
He was a good deacon. And we saw this in chapter 6. The apostles come together and they say, it's not good that we, we wait on the tables of the widows. As you remember, there were some widows, the Greek widows were thinking that they were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so the apostles come together and they say, it's not good that we give up the praying and preaching of the word in order to, to, to wait on these tables of the widows. And so they called together seven men to go out and to act as deacons, serving the needs of the widows. Well, Stephen is one of these deacons. He's ministering to them. He's not just providing for their physical needs, giving them food and maybe paying bills or whatever it looked like in the ancient world. But he is also ministering to them the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. They're doing the same thing with him. It wasn't just that the widows were just receiving the charity of the church, but they were also giving in ministry in the church. I, I mentioned this. When you read through the, the pastoral epistles and 1 Corinthians, Paul doesn't speak of the widows as just being people who take in the charity. No, no, no. They give grace as well. They minister to others. They would have been ministering to Stephen as well. Stephen is giving, and, and he is getting, and so are the widows. They are all receiving the grace of this diaconate ministry that has been established, and Stephen's a great example of this. Third, he is also an evangelist. This is a young church. We see him in chapter 6 and chapter 7 going out and spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. We see there in chapter 6, verse 8, that, he, that Luke tells us that he was going around and he's performing many signs and wonders. Many of these would have been healing. Healing people that are sickness, casting out demons and, and things like that. And we, we, we were so quick to get kind of focused in on the miracles that we forget that miracles are just mere servants. Miracles are, are, are ministers. And they, they minister the word. They confirm the world, the, the, the word. Stephen is not just a miracle worker. He's not a magician. He's not a performer. He's an evangelist. He is spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And in a way, he looks a lot like Jesus in doing this. Um, one of the, my favorite passages in the Bible is in Mark chapter 2. It's Jesus' first healing. He's there in the house. These people desperate to have their friend healed who's a, para, who's a, who's a paralytic. They tear the roof off the house. They, they lower this man down. And Jesus is looking at this guy, and he doesn't say first, oh, you poor man, how tough of a life you must have had. Jesus looks past the, the withered and weak legs, this man who's been living in squalor his entire life because he can't provide for himself. He looks at the man, and the first thing he says is, son, your sins are forgiven. That is the chief need of the world. That is the chief need of the church. It's not healing. It's not a I mean, a better healthcare system would be great. Better healthcare would be awesome. But it's not our chief need. Jesus saw our chief need. It is the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. Stephen saw this same thing. He wasn't going around healing people because their lives would get better. No, he was going around healing people so that people might know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. That is the main thing. That is the chief end here. Stephen was beloved by the congregation that he was ministering to because he was an instrument in the hands of Jesus Christ for the church. The, the, the church loved Stephen because he was for the church. And this is why we are called together here today. 
We are called to love one another, not because we're lovely in and of ourselves, because each and every one of us are an instrument in the hands of Jesus Christ for the upbuilding, the nurturing, the faith of the church. I hope you're all receiving something today, but you're not here just to receive. This is a two-way street. You're also here to be edified and to edify one another. The people sitting next to you, the people sitting in front of you, the people sitting behind you today on Wednesday nights at book studies or whatever it might be, that is why you are here, to strengthen the faith of others. Our faith is strengthened when it comes alongside the faiths of others. Now, here's the thing. I'm, I'm very happy and thankful for the individual relationship that I have with God through Jesus Christ. I'm very thankful that I can say my sins are forgiven. I am justified. I am adopted. I am being sanctified. Those things are absolutely wonderful. But you know what edifies my belief in those things? You do. Other people. The faiths of others. When we were, we were, when we were made anew in Christ, we were made for others. And apart from each other, your love and your faith will inevitably grow cold. Being on Christian mission is not a solo mission. We do this together. And apart from each other, we will grow cold. I, um, here comes another food illustration. Um, I, like, I like barbecuing. Um, it's probably one of my favorite things. Uh, one of the things that, I, that I've noticed when I grill is I always do like kind of indirect heating. I have like a hot zone and I have a cool zone. Something that I've noticed in the hot zone, you got to take all the coals and you got to put them all together. And they burn really hot when they're like that. But at the end of the cook, when all the coals are just about burned down, on one side, the hot side, you'll see just really at this point just a pile of ashes. There might be a little bit of warmth coming off, but not nearly enough to cook. But on the other side, sometimes the coal will kind of roll off the heap. And it'll kind of come over here to the cool side. And it doesn't burn at all. I mean, it might burn a little bit when it's with these other ones, but then it comes over here and it very quickly just becomes extinguished. It becomes so cold that you can actually reach into the grill and even, and even pick it up. It's not burning anymore. It's even cool or maybe just warm to the touch. The same is true for us. If we're apart from the church, we become cold in our faiths. We need to be inspired by the face of others. Inspired when we see strong faiths in others. I'll give you an example of a, of a strong faith that I've been richly edified by. When I was in, when I was in Huntsville at, at Westminster, there was a man there who, I won't give you too much details of his, of, his, of his life, but he had an extremely lucrative career that came with a lot of respect. He was a, a pure and absolute genius, had a Ph.D. from MIT, uh, one of these days, whenever we actually make it to Mars, he wrote the textbook on the theory of how we're going to get there. He retired somewhat early. And when he was asked, why did you retire when you got so much left in the tank? You know what his answer was? Because there's a lot of shut-ins that we have here who need their loans cut. He gave up this lucrative career, this respectful career. Why? Because he wanted to cut grass for old ladies. He needed more time to do that. You know how richly that blessed me to see a guy set aside all of this, the things that I judge by the, by the lenses of the world as being, as being critical and being above everything else. He says, I can't do that anymore. There's some sticks that need to be picked up. 
There's loans that need to be cut. There are people who need to be cared for. That's a, that's a strong faith. Strong faith isn't, isn't growing in might and power and all that stuff. It is emptying yourself and becoming nothing for the sake of those around you because you love them and you care for them. But it's not just strong faith that we look up to and that inspire us. It's even weak faith. So I want you to, for uh, just a second, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. I'm going to read for you verses 19 and 24. Romans chapter 7, verses 19 through 24. Paul writes, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do, the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I fight to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If you were to ask me what is the most inspiring, encouraging passage in the entire Bible, that's mine. That's mine. I, I can't stand my sin. But when I read that, I read, I'm not struggling alone against sin. I'm struggling with the same thing that the Apostle Paul struggled with. The thing that he wants to do is the thing he keeps on not doing. The evil that he wants to abstain from is what he keeps pouring himself into. I'm not alone in my struggle. You're not alone in your struggle. And it's not just Paul you're struggling with. It's those people around you. When you hear of weak faith, that's not just a time for you to encourage them. It's also a time to be encouraged along with them. You're not alone in the struggle. Now, a lot of people will hear that and they'll say something to the effect of like, well, that means I get to keep on sinning. We can all just kind of sin together and, you know, and misery loves company. But that's not what it does. When we struggle with one another, that does two things. First of all, we fight sin together. It's the struggle. When you, like, I, I would always talk to students who are like, like, they, they would str- like, I'm struggling with sin, and they're acting like that's a bad thing. That's a great thing. You shouldn't, if you're struggling with sin, don't, that's not what you need to worry about. What you need to worry about is when you're not struggling against sin. But you don't have to do it alone. You have each other. You have Paul. You have the Holy Spirit. You're always struggling with someone else when you're part of the church. And then secondly, we praise God for having revealed our sins, to, our sins to us and to each other and for having given us help from our brothers and sisters and Jesus Christ that I do not have to do this by myself. I don't have to be the coal that rolls off the heap and becomes cold and dead, but he has given me to a church that I might be warm and enlivened in my faith and in my sanctification. All of this is done so that we might praise God. That's how Paul ends that section in Romans 7 there in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who shall save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we minister to one another. Brothers and sisters, you need each other both in weakness and in strength. The command to love one another benefits everyone. The all those who are in Christ. But even as we love each other, we are surrounded by the hatred of the world. 
We are, so, we, are, we are in the middle of the arena and the world outside simply hates us. And well, why do they hate us? It's because of the gospel that we proclaim. This was a case for Stephen. And this is our last point, the world's hatred for the church. Last week, we saw the stoning of Stephen because they hated what he was proclaiming. They're probably okay with the healings. I mean, he wouldn't be okay with the healings. It was what accompanied the healings, the message of the gospel. And what does this do? It doesn't, that the stoning of Stephen didn't solve the issue. It's not like all the hatred went away. No, no. It simply inspired more persecution. Look what it says in chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution breaks out in the church in Jerusalem. It just got worse. Sin begat sin. Violence begat more violence. We have, we, have a, we have a word for that type of crowd. It's called a mob. I, I read a psychologist the other day who was talking about kind of the psychology of mobs. And he says the one thing that a, uh, being a part of a mob does is that it diffuses responsibility. Somebody who would never loot or rob, whenever, all of a sudden when everybody else is doing it, well, now it sounds like a good idea. But there needs to be something else beyond just the mere threat of violence. Just the, just, the, just the mere act of sin. There needs to be a shared and common belief. And for in Acts chapter 1, that shared and common belief is a hatred in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It looks one way in the first century. It's the Jews and the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus comes and he's telling them that they cannot please God by their traditions. They cannot please God through their offerings and sacrifices. That God does not, God is not pleased with the blood of a bull or a goat or anything like that. They don't like that they're hearing that they are sinners and that they're not, they're not quite good enough of people. They, they hear that their good works cannot save them. And in fact, the best of their works are even filthy rags before God. They don't like that. Your religious offerings, they cannot save you. They despise that message, and they despise Christ and those who would proclaim that message. They don't like hearing that they were entirely insufficient and their traditions were entirely insufficient. You know what? Our world today isn't any different. We live in a world that prizes itself on autonomy and being sufficient. In the self, there's nothing that you can't do. There's nothing that you can't put your mind to and accomplish. You, are you don't need anybody. You don't need anybody else. You certainly don't need God. You can handle all of this yourself. We are hyper-individualistic. Hyper-individualistic. What this has done is it's made us consumers in everything. And what that means is when we're not getting something out of something else, we dump it. You know, that's the leading cause of divorce right now. Just, just no fault. Well, you know, they're funny or good looking or, you know, something. And now, now all of a sudden, eh, I don't want really to care for it anymore. I'm done. I'm not getting anything out of it. You know, you know why people, most people jump churches time and time again? Well, I'm not being fed. I'm not getting anything out of it. That is a consumerist idea of the church. That's a consumerist idea of marriage. And the gospel could not be more anti-that, anti-autonomous. The gospel comes and says, you must become a beggar. A world, a world bent on individualism does not like that. You must become a beggar. You must seek another's goodness. You must accept another's sacrifice. You must accept another's revelation of God. You must bow the knee to another. The world despises that. 
Our world hates this message of non-autonomy. And as they do in Acts chapter 8, they reach out in, in violence. And it's not something we're really seeing now, but here's the thing. In the history of the church, we're in a very unique part right now that we don't have to face violence. We don't have to be like the devout men risking their lives to go and bury Stephen. I came to church here worried about, you know, was my, was my tie fall seasonal enough? Did I tie that? Does it, does it go well with this blue kind of check pattern? Will anybody notice that my socks are maroon and not actually quite uh, burnt orange? I'm like, is my kid going to be able to sit there in church service? That, that's what I concern myself with as I'm coming, if I, as I'm coming to the house of the Lord. You know what the early church was doing? They were scurrying like rats trying to avoid the light. But here's the irony of this. The gospel is a light. The persecution itself is a light. And it reveals the amazing love that the early church had for one another. I'll give you an illustration of this. Uh, I'm not a big horror film fan, but there's one that I saw a few years ago that I especially just love. It's called, it's called A Quiet Place. Let me, let me kind of explain kind of what takes place. The, the whole idea of it is, is that these monsters have come from outer space, and they can't see anything, but they can hear really well. And so everybody needs to just stay quiet. You can't, you can't make any noise, because if you make any noise, they're going to find you, and they're going to kill you. Well, at the heart of the story is um, a, a little family, and particularly the relationship between a father and his daughter. And I won't get into it, but their daughter had done something when she was very young that, that cost the family dearly. And because of that, she just cannot believe that her father loves her. She thinks that her father hates her, despite the fact that her father keeps telling her, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, but she just cannot believe it. But then toward the end of the film, she's made a noise, and she's hiding in the truck, and these monsters are tearing the truck apart, about to kill her, and she's, she's sitting there crying and everything, and she looks out the window, and she sees her father standing across the street, and he's looking into the window, and she sees on the like eyes, and her father just mouths the words, I love you. And when he does that, he begins to scream. When he screams, the monsters hear him, and they come, and they spare her life, and they go, and they, they just tear him to pieces. But in that moment, she knew. Her father wasn't just saying, I love you. She knew that he loved her. He showed her that he loved her, and that he meant every word that he said. I don't like horror movies. The reason I like A Quiet Place is because it's not a horror movie. It's a love story about a relationship between a daughter and her father. This veiled in horror. You see, the horror of that situation just shines a light upon the love between these two people. The horror of this situation in Acts 8, as people are being drugged from their homes and are being stoned to death, torn apart and beaten and dying slowly, having people spit and laugh at them because of all the things that they believe and hold to be dear and true and they love themselves, all of that serves as the backdrop on which Christ paints the light of the church's love for one another. As I mentioned before, those people as devout men are showing their devotion to Stephen, their devotion to the church by risking their lives to bury him. Love is costly. But you know when it was most costly? In Jesus Christ. The cross is a horror story. It's not a horror story. It's a love story. It's veiled in horror. The blood and the gore 
the wrath, that my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what all that is actually saying? God loves you. And that he would move heaven and earth to have a relationship with you. Persecution, suffering, death, sickness in your own life. That's an opportunity. That's an opportunity to behold the light of the gospel, the love of God, and to show it to other people. In the hands of God, your suffering, any persecution that might come upon his church, it's a grace. It is a grace. So let us take advantage of that grace. Let us bow our knees, bow our hearts, and with open hands lift up praise to God. Because in the darkness, it is there that we see the brightest light of the love of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that none of us would ever become discouraged when it comes to the darkness, the dark things of this world, the hatred of the world, sin, death, sickness. But in all of these situations that we might be called to lean more and more upon Jesus Christ and in that showcase the divine love story. That in Jesus Christ, Father, you have indeed moved heaven and earth that you might come down and dwell amongst sinners. Father, encourage us this morning by your word and through your spirits. And in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.